So here we are. Let's open our Bibles again to Psalm 51, and we're going to come to the fifth message this morning, and we do so. I want to confess to you that I just recently learned that my favorite preacher in all of England, the late Martin Lloyd-Jones, had a sermon series on Psalm 51. I say this as I'm entering into the fifth <laughs> teaching on my Psalm 51 sermon series. So it's hard for me to say that um, I have valued his exposition so much that I would have loved to have been able to read all that he has written. I've ordered the copy to come in the mail. But before it does, I have this one snippet that I thought would I bring to you this morning that sets the stage for our time together. Lloyd-Jones in his book, Out of the Depths, concerning Psalm 51. Yes, I have that effect on People's hearts go off, emergency. That's okay. That's the Lord working through your iPhone. Um, Lori Jones says this, we must stop and think. Um, it's so funny. Let, let me begin again. The, the, membership, the, the uh, leadership meeting is canceled, which is good for everybody. Um, I'm still baptizing tonight. I guess we're all going to get baptized. <laughs> So just, you know, be thankful. We're not leaving till it's over. So uh, try to distract yourself away from whatever life-impending thing is happening outside this room. Remember, we all make it in the end. <laughs> Lloyd-Jones again, out of his book, Out of the Depths, says, We must stop and think. We must pause for a moment and face ourselves and face the life we have lived and what we have done and what we are doing. Did you ever spend a night with yourself and ask, what kind of life am I living? What are the things I fondle in my imagination and in my mind? There is no hope for a man who does not do that. And the truth about the modern world is that people are running away from just this. They are crowding into cinemas, reading novels, anything to fill up their lives and keep them from thinking, end quote. That's not just a modern sentiment, uh, of course. It's an ancient issue as well. That being, though there are no cinemas, of course, in the days of David, it's very true that he had mastered the art of filling up his mind with things other than his spiritual condition. And so, for over a year, David had to grapple with the fact that he had allowed himself to never really question the depth of his own soul. He couldn't do it. He didn't want to do it. Psalm 32 tells us that finally when he did do it, his bones had been wasting away. And so then he penned Psalm 51, a psalm of repentance, finally once that time of confession came. And as you know, the circumstances of this psalm surround the authorship of King David and his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Bathsheba's husband Uriah, all which the superscription of this psalm point to and which we know ourselves through going through this series. If our calculations are correct, this psalm was penned sometime, as I've said, between Nathan's confrontation of David and David's child's death. You can find that in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Sometime in that seven-day period, this psalm was written. And even though David knew that the, that the child would die, David believed 
that perhaps God being just merciful as he is, he might reverse the consequences of what David had done and spare the child. And so he prays and prays and prays. And in this psalm, we find the the skeleton and the essence of what it is that he prayed. So even though there was a horrific crime that had been committed before the nation and before David's God, Dathan confronted him and therefore David felt it was time to put to paper and to song the results of his his wandering. And so this is really his repentance. And I want to just read it to you. I've read it to you before, but it's so magnificent and we'll read it again. Psalm 51. For the choir director, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're justified when you speak and pure when you judge." Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Well, let me pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have in your word. Thank you even for the rains that fall that remind us not only of your common grace to all people, but of also how your word describes judgment. And help us to understand the words that we are about to Uh, investigate together that they might have application to our hearts, that they might move us to think about our lives, to contemplate what it is that we have done and that we have conspired to do, and that we might rest in your comfort, your repentance that you have granted to us, and the the joy of the salvation that alone belongs to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, if you've been taking notes with us, just so you know, we've seen in this section seven different truths, seven different truths that we've tried to unpack over the last five messages. Let me kind of quickly move through them so you know. I don't want to spend a lot of time with it. It might be more prudent for us to kind of just list them as I go, uh, starting with a little bit of a review, and I won't go into much. I'll get to more of the heart of the matter that I prepared for this morning. But if you were taking notes, we saw that most of what you see in this psalm revolves around the person of God and David's reaction to the person of God and how that moves him to repentance. And the first truth that we see in this regard is, number one, God's compassion is our only ground for petition. That's what David comes to, this realization. And you see that in verses 1 and 2 when he says, "'Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness.'" According to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. This is the only ground for the petition that David really has, is God's compassion, understanding who God is and his heart towards the sinner who has now repented of his unbelief and believed in his only provision. Now God is compassionate for the daily ongoing sins that must be turned from. So David knew David knew he couldn't turn and pay for the sins he had committed. He couldn't turn away from the sins by himself. Even as the boy couldn't be substituted in a lasting way, the boy that was going to die in his midst, the one that was his son from Bathsheba, he knew that he had to turn. He couldn't pay for his own sins, and he would ask ask for the compassion of God to help him in this time of need. So here we see that David is completely engulfed in his truth of his sin, He's completely engulfed in the feeling of the consequences which has touched his life so personally in the life of not only his wife, but also his son that is dying. And so we see that it's the compassion of God that moves him to this petition. Briefly moving, we see, number two, that he also understands that God's character is our primary reason for confession. It's the character of God that moves him to confess. And you see that in verses three and four. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Again, you see that phrase, I know in verse four, I know, I know what it is that I have done. Against you and you only, I should say, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so the fact that David here is confessing to God, the fact that he is looking at God and realizes that the main focus of his repentance, the main focus of his confession must be and should be the fact that God's character, who God is, is the driving force of his entire life. His sin had gotten so much of a part of his being, he had not confessed it for so long that he started to think in terms of his own soul that maybe it could be hidden forever until he realized that his sin, first and foremost, was against the God of his own making. Verse 4, it was against you. David's sin was before God. David's sin was before him because God was ever before David as well. David's failure was not because he didn't consider how he had killed Uriah indirectly or how he had seduced Bathsheba. David's failure was that he had not seen the character of God as the impetus for all of his confession and repentance. David's failure, his sin, his transgressions were against a holy God. 
Number three, moving quickly through this, not only do we see God's compassion is vital for our ability to petition God and God's character is our primary reason for confession towards God, but now number three, God's commands are our fundamental incentive for transformation, the commands of God. And where do I get that? We see that again in verses five and six. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the innermost person, and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Now, I told you last time, there aren't any direct commands here when I speak of God's commands. But what I'm speaking of is David is revealing to us, the reader, and to all of Israel, that his personal knowledge of God's revelation acts as his motivation. Because he understands what God has revealed in the fact that he says, I was brought forth in iniquity and that you delight in truth in the innermost person, that was the impetus for his change. So what David's revealing to us in this section is that his personal knowledge of God's revelation acts as the motivation for his change, is the personal knowledge of his own innate sinfulness in contrast with what he knows about God's intrinsic sinlessness that drives him to say what he says here. That goes along very well with what Pastor John actually preached this morning in terms of knowing the Word of God and acting on it. He knew the Word of God. He knew what the the Word, the revelation had said to him. And then finally, God allowed him to act upon that great knowledge. But he declares in verse 5 here, I was born in sin and in my, and sin my mother conceived me. We said last time he's not speaking of this in terms of a sinful uh, birth was given to him, as if his mother and father had borne him illegitimately or any such thing. Rather, he's acknowledging the human condition of his own fallenness. He's acknowledging that part of him that came into the world that was fallen from the inception. It's as if David is saying to God, I know your word. I know you delight in truth. Those things are clear to me. I know from your word that I've fallen as a man, even the very fabric of my soul, who I am and the most inner person is fallen. But now I see clearly through your word the truthfulness of both these realities side by side. I am fallen and you want truth in the innermost person and the comparison of those truths. I plead with you, O Yahweh, who knows me and has fashioned me to teach me to be who you want me to be, to help me to cling to you in your forgiveness forever. Now that brings us to the fourth truth about God and repentance as we move on through these seven Not only is God's compassion vital to our ability to petition God and God's character, our primary reason for confession, not only did we see here God's commands are our fundamental incentive to transform, but today I want to look more carefully at the rest of these verses in verse 7 and 9. And the topic, if you want to write this down, is God's cleansing is our singular means for purification. God's cleansing is our singular means for purification, and that catches us up to today. Listen as I read verse 7. David goes on, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now, as you're following with me and as we follow David's reasoning as he goes through this section, we see now that we come to this theme 
of purification and cleansing. The need for purification and cleansing. Verses 7 through 9 mark a shift in this prayer of David's heart that reveals what he believes about God and the Lord's sole ability to clean a dirty heart. And I say that because it's here in verses 7 through 9 that we notice something that's imperative for the repentant sinner to grasp. And the issue is, notice this, that God must do what David needs to have done. God must do for David that which David cannot do for himself. And you see that in verse 7, purify, then wash me, verse 8, make me. And then again in verse 8, let, verse 9, hide, blot out. He's asking God to do these actions on his behalf. He is acknowledging clearly that God must be the one that does these actions on his behalf. God must purify, not David. God must wash, not David. God must be the one that makes this king of Israel pure and renewed and joyful because God and God alone is the only one that can forgive sin and hide the punishment of sin and blot out the record of all that David has done. This is not some kind of poetic device that he's trying to enlist here, some kind of spiritual manipulation on David's part as if he's appealing to Yahweh's supernatural ego by coming to him as the only one that could possibly help me when truth is that David knew that he could do it himself. Nothing like that exists at all. What we have here is a theological truth that is intimately connected to our own understanding of our own sinfulness. That's why it follows verses 5 and 6 when he speaks of being born in iniquity. Because we are born in sin, because we understand the height and depth of our own depraved humanity, it goes to reason that by extension we also understand that we cannot deliver ourselves. We understand that the creature that is sinking under the weight of its own innate wickedness cannot be the same creature to loosen itself from its own peril. We understand that there must be a Savior that can reach down deep into the waters of despair and reverse the trajectory of such irreversible tragedy and rescue the plummeting soul back to life and back to usefulness to God. It's like a child who has covered itself with the filth of its own waste and has no ability or understanding how to make itself clean again. It's so tragic that I bring this up, but it's true. I can't avoid it. One of my sons, I will not name the person, was in his crib when he was a baby, and he is able to force his way out of every single thing. And so we had... We had knit a, a cage around him, uh, a, a, a cage of, of cords that would allow him not to exit that little crib. And as we went in one morning to our utter horror, the crib was plastered with baby dew. <laughs> as he was as well, growling like a small animal, <laughs> challenging us to just come and try to clean him. I can't help but think of that because I won't say who it was. I, he, he would never let me do that, but it was one of the three <laughs> who 
was such a great picture of the fact that had we not washed him and bathed him and gotten layers upon layers of his own you-know-what off of him, that he would be soiled to this day. (laughs) He had to have someone understand to come to him and see him in his wretched condition and clean him of his own filth. It must be the Father who comes and cleans. I mean, the mother's a part of it too, but theologically it just doesn't work out to say that. Lori said, I was the one there, not you. But I saw it. It was the Father who must mend what is broken. It's the Father who takes the soap and scrubs the skin so that the heart can rejoice. And again, though... We laugh, it is essential. It's essential for the believer in every age to comprehend and grapple with. Not only can a man or woman not save themselves from judgment, not only can a man or woman not forgive themselves for what it is that they have done, though you hear that in circles all the time, I cannot forgive myself as if that is a step towards forgiveness. What you have here is, A sinner, once they are regenerated, once they are redeemed and ransomed, they belong to God, once they are born again, they still cannot clean themselves. It is not from the the stain of daily sin. It's not enough to say, now I am saved, so I'm in a state of protection against the pollution of sin, and now no longer must I reach out to the one, the Holy One, to cleanse me. The forgiven saint still must plead with the one who saved them to sanctify them over and over again. I'm not saying that eliminates any kind of responsibility. We still must do the deeds that we must do. We still must live for the glory of God. We still must magnify him and and show fruit of repentance and fruit of love for him. But that comes because God is one that grants repentance both to eternal life and to life itself. And so the Bible teaches that not only God saves, that not only God makes the sinner alive, but we have to realize that it's also true that the same God is the only one that can restore and renew and purify. That's why David says, purify, wash, make me here, let the bones, it's you. This is not the process, if anybody is confused, of ongoing repentance leading to eternal life. No, this is the ongoing process of purification that leads to a sanctified life of one who has been redeemed. I know you've forgiven me. Forgive me again. I know this is not a forgiveness unto life. This is a forgiveness unto relationship. Marriage, I think, is a helpful example. Uh, I'm married 25 years Tuesday. Very, very thankful. And nothing I do against Lori makes me unmarried to her. But my sin against her could make my relationship with my bride become so distant and so cold and in such a state of disarray that if a stranger walked by and saw our interactions, they might assume we were never married. But we are. And by the way, that's not true at all for us. The relationship to be restored, there must be forgiveness and compassion and a confession of wrong that makes my spouse realize my wrong and see my earnestness towards them and wanting to be right with them, to be pure. 
I cannot tell you how many times I go through this in counseling. I cannot tell you how this seems to me to be so obvious in the scripture, but not obvious in life, which is, I know what I must do to restore this relationship, and yet I hesitate. I will not do the thing I must do. And in this case, I will not plead to God to change me. Again, David expresses here that God's purification, this act of cleansing, is the only means that the sinner has to be forgiven and washed over so that their sin no longer inhabits a relationship to the Lord and to others. Now, you may have noticed this is not the first time David has looked at his own sin in light of God's ability to change him. In fact, we see David using the same terms here in verses 7, 8, and 9 as he did in the earlier verses of Psalm 51, but he does it in reverse order. Just notice this quickly with me. In verse 1, David begins the song by begging Yahweh to blot out his transgressions. That's how he begins. And now at the end of this section of verse 9, he appeals for God to blot out his iniquities. Back to verse 2, he pleads with Yahweh to wash him so as to be clean. And now in the last part of verse 7, he says the same thing, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Again, verse 2, he cries, cleanse me from my sin. And then the first part of verse 7, purify me so I may be clean. This is just more than some kind of chiastic form that David uses. This is not just a poetic device to help us memorize this portion of Scripture. This is the heart that continues to possess the one that needs God to, to, to change them, to transform them. And the unchanging truth is, and David knows this, that he cannot produce on his own the ability to take away the stains of his sin. They are permanent and they are plastered against his mind and they are etched into his heart with an indelible ink. And no matter how hard he tries and exerts himself, the knowledge of his own corruption and the knowledge of his own guilt before God can never be reversed, listen, by his own hand. That's why he cries out in verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities, as if to say, do it as if they had never happened to me, O God. Erase from my life and from your presence my sin. Commentators like to point out that for serious premeditated sins, as David's sins were, that a sin offering could not be offered. Sin offerings were for sins that were inadvertent or done in ignorance, according to Leviticus 4. Also, that meant that any subsequent burnt and peace offerings could not be made either, according to Leviticus 1 and Leviticus 3. What does that mean? It means David is trapped. David is trapped. His sin against Bathsheba, the calculations of his intentional sin against Uriah, the premeditation of it, the cruelness of it, all of that pomp and circumstance of him standing before Israel and allowing himself to be seen as a leader of the ongoing ministry as a king under the mask of legitimacy was all a sham. He needed God to cleanse him to be pure. And so David cries out for direct intervention from God to let him know that he was forgiven. Let me know that I'm forgiven. I need to know from you that I'm forgiven so that I can once again worship you with the assembly. And let's look carefully at what he says here. In verse 7, he says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
His, his objective, if you notice, his overriding desire is to be clean, to be whiter than snow. In other words, to not be defiled. No defilement is held against me, O oh God, please. Hyssop, that you may or may not know, is a herb that has been claimed to treat various ailments, including ulcers, even cancer. But in the Bible, it was used in connection with the Passover in the Exodus 12, 22, and the cleansing of lepers in Leviticus 14, and the sacrifice of the red heifer and red heifers in Numbers 19. Even Hebrews 9 tells us that hyssop was used to sprinkle on the scroll containing the law and on the people. John 19, 29 even tells us that our Lord was being crucified and a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. The symbol of all of that is making one healed, to try to heal one. And David, knowing that it wasn't the literal branch that he's asking for, but the symbolism of what it is, needed healing. He needed to be clean. He needs to be washed of the filth of his depravity. Scrub me, O oh God. This is so imperative for the believer to understand, to grasp, to, to think deeply about. In fact, I'd say without this deep sense of guilt and pain over sin, it's a wonder to me that anybody would ever want to be right with God. When David says in verse 8 that he desires to hear joy and gladness, he's expressing once again to be right in standing before God. So much that the celebration, get this, of joy that comes from a people that are forgiven is the celebration that he can hear again. I want to be able to hear it. I want to be able to experience the joy in the assembly that gladness that he had had left his worship when he was in the assembly of the redeemed. He couldn't raise his voice. He couldn't open his mouth with gladness. He could not allow himself to rejoice without feeling the bones in his face crushed by the weight of his unforgiven sin. He couldn't worship Yahweh with a clean heart that he so desperately wanted to be able to do because he knew his life was so impure he needed to be forgiven. It needed to be purified. That's what he longed for. And that's why he prays, you do it to me, O God. Your cleansing makes my purification. I think this is what's wrong with the church. Today, in so many of its different venues, you have people who long for restoration without repentance. They long for the joy and the gladness without the invitation of forgiveness. They want the result of a clean conscience without God cleansing them. I want to celebrate purity without being pure. I want to rejoice in my guilt being covered by the blood of Jesus Christ without ever allowing my sin to be dealt with by Christ. Instead, it seems to me, and I know you probably know this as well, not in our church, praise the Lord, but so often everywhere, people go to church to feel better about their lives. They go to church to have some positive message of inspiration blown into their sails. And I understand this. They want to be told that they're diamonds in the rough. They, they want to be told that they're snowflakes in a unique way more than their co-workers ever could understand. That being a part of the local assembly is a place where you can find shelter from worldly influences of temptation and hide themselves in the world of humor and distraction and motivational talks that teach them to let the cares of this world go away and get lost in the culture of worldly counterfeits. 
that are more acceptable but strangely similar to what they have in the workplace. John McCarthy once wrote uh, and spoke of this where he said that a place calling itself a church, that's his term, where he watched a service on television. The first thing the pastor did was said, welcome to our worship. We're going to worship the Lord together. And then he said, let's pray. And the first words out of his mouth, he articulated this in his prayer. Oh, Lord, we deny anything that is negative. We deny anything that takes away our joy. We reject all law, thoughts of loss. We reject anything that would steal our dreams, our ambitions, our goals, our desires. And then he just went on and on with this kind of thing for an extended period of time. See, people want that. They are afraid to deal with their sin. They are afraid because they're never told that they need to deal with their sin. So they carry the weight of their unrepentance to work and to work in their homes without pleading to God, God alone, to make them pure. But not David. David needed God to cleanse him, and he knew it. There's another truth here that we see revealed to us by King David, another truth that acts kind of like as a guidepost for us as we live through our lives and we start to reflect what it is that David has said here and how to deal with sin before Yahweh. Not only did David understand that God's compassion is our only ground for petition, God's character is our primary reason for confession, God's commands are our fundamental incentive for conversion, and God's cleansing is our singular means for purification. But now in verses 10 through 13, see, God's creation is our only hope for restoration. God's creation is our only hope for restoration. And you'll see this as I read. David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Rejoy to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Now, if you're listening carefully, obviously a lot of these are going to overlap some of the themes that I'm trying to unpack here in these verses. But it's essential, it's essential if we can to separate these different themes. When I speak of God's creation is our only hope for restoration, please know that I'm not speaking of God's creation in terms of animals and trees and molecules and sunsets, even though that is true, of course, all of those things are God's creations in that way. But I want to play off what David says here in verse 10 to make this point. When I speak of God's creation, I'm speaking of God's sole ability to create, all right? That's what I'm going for. Create in me a clean heart, O God. That's God's creation. God does the creating. You, O God, creator of all things, the one who has created all that is seen and unseen, you, O God, can create bara ex nihilo out of nothing. Please use that creative power and create a new heart, a clean heart in me. The nothingness of my sinfulness creates something new inside of me. I said bara because that's the Hebrew word here that David uses. In Genesis it's used three critical points of creation. That word is used to speak of the creation of matter in the heavens and the earth. It's also used to speak of the creation of self-conscious life, even animals, and also the creation of God-conscious life, human beings, in verse 27 of Genesis 1. 
And all of this was created out of nothing. You see, we have been told we create out of existing material using pre-existing mental forms or ideas, but God creates out of nothing, and that is true. In other words, as Derek Kinder writes in his commentary, with the word create, he asked for nothing less than a miracle. So this is important for us to grasp. David here, after all the sin, all the description of all the hiding and plotting and rotting away of his own bones, David here is acknowledging that for him to go on, for me to live the rest of my life, for me to get rid of the impact of this sin and the horror of the consequences, there must be creation out of nothing. If David is to be restored to right standing and right usefulness, as we shall see If David were ever to be fully rid of the man he had become, then there would have to be a kind of creative act on his part. Make something, dear Lord, out of my nothingness. This is a cry of a repentant heart. Obviously, David knew the Apostle Paul, what he would later write in theory, that nothing good lives in me, Romans 7, 18. That is my sinful nature. If the work was to be any good, it could not be use anything that was already in David. If God was going to make David good, he could not use what was already alive in David. It would have to be creation from nothing. It would have to be, if it came from David himself, it would be contaminated. It would be like dropping a a drip of ink into a glass of water. Everything becomes distorted. And that's why David prays this prayer with his dying son in the next room, with his wife weeping over the loss of this baby in its crib, with the secrets of Uriah's murder pressing down upon him. Nothing is good in me. He has to cry out, God, create in me a new heart. Do a creative act in me. There's nothing in me to create anything that is good. It must be your own ability to fashion out of my shipwrecked life Something that could be useful so that I might be useful to you. He would be destined otherwise to live forever as a haunted man plagued by guilt and shame. But instead, he pleads with God as creator that God's creation might be the impetus for his change. This is the experience of every single one of us in this room. Maybe you've never heard it like this. Maybe you've never said it to yourself like this. But obviously, as I speak... You know the truth of it. You have to come face to face. If you haven't come face to face with it, this is the time that God has the sole ability to give life and sustain life. In Ezekiel, you hear the prophet quoting when he says, Ezekiel 36, 25, I, God speaking, will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The the same God, the creation God, who creates a new heart in regeneration, listen to this distinction, is the same God who creates a clean heart in sanctification. The new heart 
in salvation, the clean heart, in sanctification. He alone can purify and wash and renew. And this doesn't give you the permission then to sit there and say, well, then I can't do it for myself. There's nothing I can do. I, I want to repent. I, I, I see what the Bible says, but it says there that God has to be the one that creates it in me. And therefore, I can say the words, but it has to be God that does it. Therefore, I won't change. That, my friend, is self-deception at a very, very dangerous level. You must be the one that repents. You must be the one that changes. You must be the one that calls upon God. But you also must not be so naive to think that that is something that's in you that's going to create that process. God does it. And the agony for David here is knowing this about his sin and knowing that it is God with, that has the power alone to create out of nothing. And that's why he says in verse 11, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, this can be confusing to the reader at first because it seems like David is saying, if you don't create a clean heart, then I'm going to be doomed forever outside of your presence. In other words, it seems as if he's saying, I can lose my salvation because God taking the Holy Spirit from David would be comparable to having eternal life ripped out of his soul. But we know the scriptures, you have to have a comparison of scripture. The analogy of scripture tells us that a true believer can never be lost. A true believer can never lose their salvation. My my time is, is gone, but John 10, 27, Jesus speaks that no one can pluck them out of my hand. Romans 8, 38 speaks of Paul saying nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And because scripture can't go against itself, We have to ask ourselves, then what does David mean when he says this in verse 10? He's not then talking about losing his salvation. Do not cast me away from you. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Then what is he saying? If being cast away from the presence of the Lord and having his Holy Spirit taken from David meant losing his salvation, then David would say, restore to me your salvation. He wouldn't say to me, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He would say, restore to me salvation. No, David wants restoration with Yahweh. He wants to be in right standing before Yahweh. He wants to be in right relationship with the God he sinned against. Listen to me. Give me two more minutes. Sin creates division. Sin separates us from those that we've sinned against. You may sin against your wife, as David do. You may woo her from her purity. You may sin against your children, as David did, by allowing the consequences of your sin to invade your household for the next generation. And the result of that sin and the loss of tenderness is, is so dreadful and so horrible. But the same is true with God as well. You are never excommunicated from the family of believers. You were never cast out from the kingdom, but your relationship with Yahweh is marred and soiled and covered over with unrepentance until you come to your senses and you turn from your sin and you plead to the Lord to show compassion on you once again, not just to right standing, but to right relationship with intimacy and joy and, I might add, with service. And look at verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Once my sin is forgiven and my relationship is restored, I am free now to be used by God. I am free now to teach others about their sin through the example of my sin. The goal of that service is to worship God. The most bold evangelist in this room, the most bold evangelist in this church are the most grateful sinners. 
They're the ones that have been taught that the useful slaves to the master are the slaves that have been forgiven much and know it, and they live it with gratitude. So what does David mean then by saying in verse 11, God not to take his Holy Spirit? He isn't saying that a believer can have the Holy Spirit and then not have the Holy Spirit. He's not saying that. David is king. And remember, the king had a special anointing in his life, an anointing that's indicated by the coming of the Spirit. You see this in the Old Testament where God would allow the Spirit to be uh, imparted and departed from men who had the position of king. It's a unique Old Testament gift. You can look it up later, 1 Samuel 16, 13 to 14. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. That's not talking about his salvation. That's talking about his anointing as king. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah, and the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. An evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. So the coming and the going of the Spirit was not salvation, but it was a kingly appointment. So David, and then we're going to land the plane. David wants to have an anointing in the future. He wants to be a faithful king. He wants to be of service to God. He doesn't want the sin that has crippled his life to destroy his usefulness. He said, you trusted me once, trust me again. And so he didn't lose his salvation. He lost the joy of it. He lost the joy of service and of being right with his maker. And he wants that willing spirit, a spirit that is devoted to that which pleases God. Here's my conclusion, and then you can go in your canoes. (laughs) Charles Spurgeon. Now, I cannot come and stand at the door and speak to everyone as the congregation withdraws, but if it were possible, I should like to stand there and shake the hand of everyone who has been in the house and say, well, friend, how fares it with you? Can you say, I will rejoice in thy salvation? If I cannot do that, I wish it were possible to speak in the silent shades of night to you when you awoke, so that you might hear a voice ringing in your ears, do you rejoice in God's salvation? Perhaps some of you have come a long distance across the sea. You may be by and by on shipboard again, and it may be that you are in peril, or maybe that afterwards you shall be sick. Well, may this evening's congregation and this day of July rise up your minds. And if you forget the preacher, that will not matter. Yet if you hear a voice that says, can you rejoice in God's salvation? I hope that even if it is 20 years to come, that it may then be as the voice of God to your soul and bring you to the Savior. Better far would it be if you would come to him tonight and you may. May the Spirit of God bring you. Whoever believeth on the Lord Jesus Christ has everlasting life. The whole of the gospel is wrapped up in Christ's message. He that believes and baptizes is saved. And to each this is the word. Believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. So what he's saying, and then we can end. If you don't have joy in your salvation, something's wrong. And I'm not talking about skipping around like a calf. I'm I'm not talking about having some kind of artificial glee where you feel like you have to be on all the time and if you're not smiling, something's wrong. No, it's okay not to be smiling. I visited Charles in the hospital. Yes, just as John said, and he has broken ribs. And when he came into the room as I was waiting for him, he was miserable, miserable. Poor guy, so thin and on this accident and so just filled with regret, thinking that what has happened to me, but his joy was there. His joy is always there. 
because he's a joyful servant of the Lord. Let those words affect you today and think about as we continue our journey through this psalm. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for even the seasons of life that challenge us. Thank you for the fact that all we need to do is to acknowledge you in the midst of all of this, uh, your commandments, your creation, your cleansing. All things are from you and to you, and our repentance and our change and our transformation is dependent upon you. Let us see you for who you are, the great I am, the changer of hearts and the sustainer of souls. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.